Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at innovation and the laws of subtraction. Six simple rules for winning in the age of excess everything. Why multitasking isn't just ineffective, but maybe downright hazardous to your health. And why you should stop obsessively checking your email and smartphone right this second. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Matt May, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Edit Innovation. Prior to starting Edit Innovation, Matt spent eight years in an advisory role for Toyota. He is the author of several books, most recently, The Laws of Subtraction, Six Simple Rules for Winning in the Age of Excess Everything. He's also the author of The Elegant Solution, Toyota's Formula for Mastering Innovation, which was a 2006 Wall Street Journal bestseller, and In Pursuit of Elegance, Why the Best Ideas Have Something Missing. Matt received his training in design thinking from the Stanford Hasso Plotner Institute, aka the D School, and an MBA in marketing and organization design from the Wharton School. Today, he writes often for publications like the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Open Forum, The Rotman Magazine, MIT Sloan Management Review, and many more. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So let's start things off by setting the stage quickly for the rest of the episode. Your most recent book, as I mentioned in the intro, is The Laws of Subtraction, Six Simple Rules for Winning in the Age of Excess Everything. Can you share with listeners what those six simple rules are? Uh, sure. It, it all begins with sort of the Uber, the Uber law, which is um, what isn't there can often trump what is. Then there is the, the, the simplest rules, create the most uh, engaging experience. Uh, limiting information can uh, engage the imagination. Creativity thrives under intelligent constraints. Uh, break is the important part of breakthrough. And the final one is uh, doing something isn't always as important as doing nothing. Okay, great. Definitely a lot of things that we've heard from previous guests as well. So looking forward to exploring these things over the course of the episode. Let's talk about the first rule, which is what isn't there can often trump what is. It's a topic you wrote about recently for the Harvard Business Review. Why do you think that what's missing is often just as important, if not more important than what's really there? Well, I guess um, let me let me let me take you back about ten years um, to an experience that uh, that I had, uh, which is sort of the the genesis of 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 all of my work. Actually, sort of a life changing experience. I, I was in the middle of a what turned out to be an eight year stint with uh, Toyota. Mm-hmm. They bought all my time for about eight years, and smack dab in the middle of it. I ran up against a uh, a brick wall where I was simply not able to um, really help them in the project that I was uh, working on, and it, it revolved around ideas. And when you run out of ideas with a with a company like Toyota, it's it's not a good day. Um, and I was ready to sort of make my exit. And um, a couple of of 
little bits of wisdom um, crept into uh, crept onto my radar screen, and I think sometimes when you are uh, at your wit's end, when you've exhausted all the sort of top of mind solutions and things that always always have worked for you in the past, you begin to look for alternative pathways to move forward, and and that's sort of what happened. And one of those little bits of wisdom actually came in the form of a uh, an essay uh, by Jim Collins who uh, had written uh, an end-of-the-year essay, the year was 2003, in the USA Forum section. And the title of that was Best New Year's Resolution, A Stop Doing List. And what really struck me, is a wonderful story, um, but what struck me was sort of his concluding paragraph where he says something to the effect of uh, the ideal piece of uh, art uh, or a masterpiece is composed equally of not just what's in the piece, but equally uh, of what is not. And it's the discipline to discard what doesn't fit, that what may have taken months, if not years, of effort that marks uh, a true masterpiece, whether you're talking about a, a life, uh, a business, a book, or a symphony. Um, and that just sort of stuck with me, and I began to look around at uh, the projects I was involved in, the ideas that um, I was involved in, and it, it, um, it just struck me that we spend so much time on what we put into a project, um, what we focus on, what we do, what we add, that we just don't give enough thought to the reverse, sort of the yin and the yang, what isn't there. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of compelling space in the what isn't there that allows for your audience, your users, your customers to inject their intelligence, their, uh, their, their interest, their creativity. Um, and what results is a far more powerful outcome. Yeah. You know, it makes me think of, uh, yeah, the, the internet of things heralds all kinds of yeah, fantastic revolutions. But but when, you know, one thing that we talk about around here every now and then is just because your refrigerator can be hooked up to the internet doesn't mean that it should be, right? I mean, there's a I'm sure there are inventive ways or inventive things that you could do with a fridge that's hooked up to the internet. Maybe it could shop for you. Who knows? But it's it maybe is there to really freeze and and, and refrigerate your food, not necessarily to be connected to the internet. Right. Yep. Okay, so so let me ask you about the about the fourth rule, skipping ahead a little bit, but it's creativity thrives under intelligent restraints. So what are intelligent restraints and can you give a few examples? Sure. Um and not to correct you but it but it uh it's constraint and it, uh, there's not a, there's not a big difference there. Um kind of a funny story I'll I'll, I'll tell you real quickly. There were originally seven rules. Mm-hmm. Um and and one of them actually used the word restraint and when the uh, proposal got pitched to a couple publishers, the one that came back to me <laughs> with a suggestion for subtraction happened to be Harvard um Business Review Publishing. Um, and they said, you know, these two rules, the one about, you know, in, uh, creativity and constraints and this other one about um, resource restraints mm-hmm. are pretty much the same rule. Why don't you get rid of one? And I thought, OK, that's good advice. I'll, I'll, I'll eat my own dog food. Yes. <laughs> so. Well, what isn't there can often trump what is. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, and, that, and they also supported their um, um, and I don't want to get too far off topic here with you, but um, they also supported their 
uh, critique with data that showed that something about uh, when they had blog posts that had the number six versus the sort of traditional seven, they got more they got more eyeballs. Um, so they sort of uh, convinced me that way. But um, let me answer your question. An intelligent constraint um, is is you know there's no secret to no secret sauce or or hidden meaning to the word intelligent. Um, I'm not talking about willy nilly cuts. Um, it takes no genius to to cut a budget, to cut a headcount. Um, that's not really what I'm talking about. Um, what I'm talking about is the metaphor of, for instance, the the children's uh, a child's sandbox. Um, research is pretty clear that there's a lot of creativity that happens inside the box when it comes to uh, a sandbox. You can have an, an entire yard full of toys and that sort of scarce sandbox with a couple of toys, kids will be far more creative, far more imaginative in their play. And that's really all I'm talking about here is when you get intelligent about the, the box that you've put people in, in terms of what are the goals that you have for them, what are the time frames that you wish them to create in, uh, there's a certain magic that happens. And, um, you know, a few examples that, uh, that come to mind. Gosh, there was one um, uh, that comes to mind just because in the news this morning and yesterday, um, I live out here in, in Los Angeles and there's been a lot of buzz around uh, pending or, or forthcoming earthquakes. Um, and one of my favorite stories actually is, is uh, it's 20 years old from 1994. Uh, I was living out here and we had this big thing called the uh, Northridge earthquake. And the Northridge earthquake destroyed a segment of freeway that connects downtown Los Angeles with the west side and the beach areas. 350,000 people traveled that artery uh, every day to and from work. Uh, and recreation. Mm -hmm. And when the, the freeway went down, that section of freeway went down, uh, California Transportation Agency, uh, Caltrans as it's called out here, gave an early estimate and they said it will probably take us 18 months at a, at a combined hard and soft cost of roughly $1 million a day over that 18-month period to get that segment of freeway up and running again. And a fairly, fairly creative uh, commercial construction company uh, run by a guy by the name of C.C. Meyer up in the San Francisco Bay Area read that in the L.A. Times and said, that just cannot possibly be right. I know that I can get that, that freeway up and running far under uh, 18 months. And so he, uh, he and a, a half a dozen of his um, sort of lieutenants made their way to City Hall and talked to the mayor of Los Angeles, and they struck a deal. And the deal was that C.C. Uh, Meyer was to get the uh, Santa Monica uh, freeway up and running again in 120 days, four months versus the, 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 the 18 months. Big, big, big difference, big constraint. And there, was, uh, there were some conditions to it. One condition was, and this was a $15 million uh, project. He had to put up his own money in the form of a bond. Mm -hmm. And the mayor um, uh, responded in a, in a fairly savvy way to one of the demands that C.C. Meyer made. He said, you know, um, C.C. Meyer said, you know, I, if I come in every day, every day I come in under that 120-day uh, time period, I'd like a bonus of $200,000. And the mayor sat back and said, okay, but for every day you're late, 
we ding you (laughs) $205,000. So the constraints were clear. Mm -hmm. And here's the, uh, allow me to to jump to the the end story. Do you have any idea, and perhaps you know or read about it, do you have any idea how long it took to get that freeway up and running again? You probably don't, but let me just. I don't know. Okay. 66 days. Wow. 66 days. He made quite a name for himself um, and uh, restored uh, L.A. to uh, you know, a good bit of economic wholeness. But here's the thing. Um, that, that, those kinds of constraints drove creativity. And were they working harder? Absolutely. Were they working around the clock? Absolutely. Were they running on the job? Absolutely. Were they using quick-setting concrete and, and lightweight steel? Absolutely. But that wasn't where the ingenuity innova- and innovation was. You know what they did? And, and this goes to the notion of subtraction. They, they made one request of the city. They said, we need your inspector to be with us on site at all times so that we have our inspector real time giving us um, uh, approvals to move forward. We don't want to complete a section of work, um, wait two weeks to schedule an inspector. He comes out, finds something wrong, we have to fix it, and there's another two-week lag while he comes back. We want real-time inspections. They took the waste and the waiting out of the process. And that's the kind of creativity and resourcefulness I'm really talking about. I'm not talking about creating a, a new painting or a song. I'm, I'm talking about business resourcefulness here, and that's a pretty good example of it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great example. And and I think feeds nicely into the uh, in, into one of the other rules. The third rule is limiting information engages the imagination. So I came across a Forbes article this week that you may have seen that I thought would be fitting to bring up, and it was about multitasking and the fractured world that we live in, where there are seemingly more demands for our time and attention every day. And the article covers some new research that suggests that multitasking is not just detrimental to the quality of our work but may actually cause brain damage based on on brain scans. So in the context of rule number three, can you talk a little bit about how limiting the amount of information we subject ourselves to can actually engage the imagination and improve business performance? Sure. Um, that's, an interesting, um, that's an interesting article, and uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll give that a read. Um, I wasn't I wasn't aware that it could actually cause brain damage, but I got to yeah, tell you. Yeah, I mean, I mean there, and, and it, I think the science is unclear, right? I mean, they're also saying that people who don't have, you know, as high levels in certain regions of their brain may be more prone to multitasking. So it's it's maybe kind of a chicken or the egg, you know, type type of thing, right? But but it yeah, it, it at least put, it at least uh, you know brought up an interesting point. I thought. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I'm going to track that down. So let me ask, uh, let me answer your question about um, imagination and business performance. You know, I don't know if you remember when the very first iPhone came out. Yeah, of uh, course. It, it's yeah. So it's been what was it? It was 2007. Seven, right. Right. Yeah. And and to this day, Steve Jobs' sort of masterful um, presentation um, just set us all back, uh, in our chairs in, in awe. But when he introduced this, um, this gadget to us, um, yeah, we were all struck by the fact that it, it didn't have a keyboard, but the, the thing that, that, um, that really struck me was that this was thought to be the most hyped technological gadget gizmo thingamajig to come down the pipeline in an awful long time. 
people were calling it the Jesus phone. Um, and if you go back, though, and, and, and look at what actually happened, between the January presentation uh, and the on-sale date, which was in June, six months after the presentation, there was virtual radio silence on the part of Apple. Because to hype something means, traditionally means to do what? It means to have a lot of advertising. It means to have a lot of promotion. It, it means um, price cuts. It means getting your prototype, your working prototype, your advanced handset into the likes of, you know, Walt Mossberg, of, uh, then of the Wall Street Journal. Right. Um, and just blanketing um, the merchandising front, right? That's hype. That's just that's pushing things out there. Apple did none of that. They, there was no advertising. There was no promotion. There was no publicity. Walt Mossberg and others could not get their uh, hands on an advanced copy or an advanced uh, version of, of the iPhone. No one could. There were no price cuts. There was a synchronized on-sale date. You could not in any way get it before it actually went on sale um, all around the world, um, and people filled in the blank. And there was great imagination that, uh, that occurred to the point that websites popped up, uh, the bloggers and the blogosphere just lit up, and everyone was um, you know, speculating on what this was, what it wasn't, what it would have, what it could do, what it couldn't do. And the thing went gangbusters to the point that 20 million people expressed an interest in buying the iPhone before they had ever seen it. The only thing they had, re had to reference was Steve Jobs's presentation. Yet 20 mi million people um, expressed interest. In, it, it tipped. It mm -hmm. tipped before it ever hit uh, the market. And just to put things in, in perspective, you know, there was great ballyhoo a couple of weeks ago when they sold 10 million. Well, double that number, one of the original iPhone, and they'd never really seen it, felt it, touched it, smelt it, none of that. So, um, that's, uh, you know, talk about lim limiting information. Um, the embargo on information actually drove business performance from a marketing perspective. Okay, great. So let me ask you, Matt, about a blog post that you published on Innovation Excellence a while ago, and it was about the three-hour vision meeting, which is a tool that you can use to quickly arrive at a collective mind share by kind of bringing everyone in the company or everyone in a, in a team on board with uh, certain ideas or plans. So what is the three-hour vision meeting, and how does it qualify as a strategy for kind of corporate excellence? Well, the three-hour vision meeting is my response to um, what I see a lot of companies doing, which is spending days um, you know, in off-sites trying to wordsmith a fancy vision statement that really doesn't um, lift the organization or point it in a, in a new and an effective direction. So I think you can do the same thing um, uh, in about three hours. And the guts of the three-hour vision meeting is to take the reverse approach that most uh, sort of vision workshops do. Most vision workshops take the approach of let's write the, the happy story. Let's write uh, the headline uh, that, uh, you know, someone's written an article about how great a company we are in the Wall Street Journal three years from now. And let's write that happy story. And it's a very optimistic story. And it, it, it points out all the things that we need to do and what that we, the end that we did in that uh, intervening time to become uh, the great company that we will become in those three years. Mm -hmm. I take the opposite approach. 
I take the sort of what's not there approach. Um, and I have people do what's called a pre-mortem, which is instead of write, writing the happy story, we write the, um, the obituary. Um, we write the headline that three, her, three years hence, um, it's a rest in peace story about your company. What went wrong? Why did it go wrong? And what that does is to point out the things that inadvertently get in the way of our success and that we don't give a lot of thought to because we have this wonderful bias for optimism. But if you don't think about those things um, in advance, when they do hit, and they will hit, you have no plan, you have no contingency, and your best laid plans um, will be nothing more than ideas on paper. Okay, got it. So one of the things that you write about, you actually wrote a wrote a book about it, is uh, elegance. So what's the common bond for you between elegance and simplicity? Sure. Um, yeah, actually, my very first book was called The Elegant Solution, uh, Toyota's Formula for Mastering Innovation. And um, uh, it sprang from this sort of informal mantra that Toyota had when I was working with them. It went something like this. People don't want our products and services. They want solutions. And when it comes to solutions, simple is better. Elegant is better still. And it actually made my life fairly difficult because no one really had a, a working definition of, of what elegance was. I knew by virtue of the fact that certain ideas were rejected, what it wasn't. It was anything that was excessive or wasteful or, or harmful or hazardous or hard to use or complex or even ugly. Mm -hmm. um, but there really wasn't a, a working definition of, of what elegance was. And then I ran across a, a, a quote by Oliver Wendell Holmes that remains one of my favorite quotes. Um, it went something like, it goes something like this. I would not give a fig for simplicity this side of complexity, but I'd give my life for simplicity on the other side of complexity. And I think what he's referring to is elegance, the ability, as I define it, to achieve the maximum effect with the minimum means. And I focus on the second half of that definition, the minimum means to achieve the maximum effect. So that's the link, I think, between um, simplicity and elegance. I think that um, anything that's elegant is simple, but not everything is, that is simple is elegant. Um, and it might be... Um, you know, it'll be tough for some people to grab, but um, it makes sense to me. So the, the, the working definition of elegance doesn't actually include the word simplicity. Um, just think about it as how to achieve the maximum effect with the minimum means. Okay, great. So basically eliminating waste from the process makes for an elegant product. So let me ask you, Matt, about the, the fifth law, which is that break is the important part of breakthrough. When you talk about a break, do you mean a break from convention? I do. I think there are uh, there are two kinds of break, and the the last two rules, the one that you just cited, and then the uh, the final one, which is doing something isn't always better than doing nothing. Um, they both refer to breaks, but there are two kinds of breaks. There are those that you make, and that there are and there are those that you take. And uh, it's the notion of breaking a pattern um, mm -hmm. where uh, innovation and creativity, I think, um, rests. It's when we do make a break from routine. Um, that uh, new patterns are formed. We get out of our, our linear thinking and our sort of on-road thinking, and we go a little bit off-road, and new ideas, new products, new services, new strategies spring forward. Um, you know, a quick example, and I hate to, to harp on, uh, on, on Apple because everyone does, but uh, gosh, when, when, uh, when Steve Jobs um, broke away from Apple, 
to start the Macintosh division is, is a pretty clear example. Sometimes you really do have to make a break um, to do something creative and innovative. Otherwise, you're, you're part of the system, part of budgets and plans, and it's very, very difficult to, uh, to fit within that. So he broke away, he moved a couple blocks away, holed up in a little two-story building, and he began calling all the all the, the engineers and designers that he stole and cherry-picked from Apple as, as, as pirates, really to sort of to, to underscore the metaphor of uh, breaking away from the mothership, if you will. Um, so, yes, I do think that, that there are times where, whether it's an accelerator, uh, an incubator, or a skunk works kind of approach that you need to take uh, in your organization, you do need to, to make the break from the ordinary and the routine. Yeah, and the the skunk works. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's another thing you've written about, which was was also a, a break from convention. I think it was at Lockheed Martin where uh, one of their engineers basically broke a team off, and they went and what was the factory that they were next to? Some place that smelled awful, right? Yeah, it was a it was a plastics factory, and um, gave off a, a horrible odor, and everyone started started calling it. Uh, uh, skunk Works with an O, S-K-O-N-K, which was a reference to a little Abner cartoon. Um, there was a Skunk Works factory in the little Abner cartoon where uh, they made this sort of weird moonshine stuff that nobody knew what was in. And uh, someone answered the phone one day, Skunk Works, <laughs> and uh, it sort of stuck until little Abner's publisher caught wind of it and made him change the name to Skunk Works. <laughs> nice. That's a great anecdote. Okay, well, we're... <laughs> Running a little low on time, Matt. Any final parting words of wisdom for listeners out there looking to bring a little addition via subtraction to their lives? Sure. You know, uh, as far as wisdom, um, well, it's not my wisdom, but um, you know, one of my one of my sort of go-to bits of wisdom comes from um, sort of an ancient Chinese philosopher by the name of Lao Tzu, uh, and and he said to to attain knowledge, add things every day to attain wisdom subtract things every day. So um, there's my wisdom for you. All right. Love it. Fantastic. Well, Matt, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, for sure. If you'd like to learn more about Matthew, visit his website at MatthewEMay.com. You can follow him on Twitter at MatthewEMay. Anywhere else that folks should be looking out for you, Matthew? What you just said will get him pretty much everywhere. (laughs) Awesome. Love it. Well, thanks again. And For any listeners out there looking to find out more about Matt, again, the website is MatthewEMay.com, and his Twitter handle is at MatthewEMay. Thanks again to Matt for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode, when we're excited to have Bill Capodai on the podcast to talk about innovating the Pixar way. Why the black sheep in your company may just be the keys to unlocking innovation success, the importance of lifelong learning, in creating a culture that thrives on innovation and the four common proficiencies to making art and innovation a team sport. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.